Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your premier audio guide to the workplace, speaking today once again, and happily once again, with Chester Elton, and he is the author of The Carrot Principle. We're going to get into that. I first met uh, Chester, didn't meet, to spoke with him over the phone. Uh, 2007, was it, Chester, when the book first came out? Yeah, sounds about right. And you're, um, you're back uh, not only promoting the book, but a, a much broader issue of promoting what? Well, employee engagement. And we actually have re-released the book with some startling new data. We went and surveyed 10,333 more employees and said, what is it that really drives employee engagement? We know that recognition in the workplace impacted the bottom line, impacted leadership. But we wanted to get down to what engages an, uh, an employee. And that was a big aha in the new findings. Um, Take us back, because this is a uh, carrot redux, and we're happy to have that opportunity <laughs> to speak with you and meet, meet you. Um, take us back to the beginning of the carrot principle, which now you've, you seemingly have created an industry around, <laughs> which is good we, for you. We have. We've got all kinds of uh, fuzzy toys. We've got Frisbees. We've got, uh, but more on the serious side, we've got training that's uh, done very, very well. We've got online training. We've licensed our training internationally, the Franklin Covey Institute for Great Leadership. Mm -hmm. So we have come a long way since, uh, since last time we talked. But the first findings that we had around the carrot principle, and the premise was quite simple, that thank you is good business. And we you know, looked at case studies that had been allegorical. We wrote some fable books. But when we really got into the data and we had access to over 200,000 surveys about does it connect to the bottom line? And yes, it did. You know, companies that recognize their employees for excellence and recognize them on a regular basis had better return on assets, better return on equity, higher operating margins than those companies that didn't. So that was the first big aha. And uh, this was done with the, the, the Carrot Group is within the parent company? Yes. We're the Carrot Culture Group, which is sort of the training publishing speaking arm of the O.C. Tanner Company, which okay. is the world's greatest recognition company. And how did that all, how did O.C. Tanner start? I think that's a sort of an interesting O.C. Tanner story. has been a company for over 80 years, actually started by Obert Clark Tanner, uh, making lapel pins in the basement of his mother's house. And it's uh, grown to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business a year. We produce over 3 million awards. We service, uh, you know, the uh, list of the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 in business today, and it's a wonderful company to work for, and we've been wonderfully successful. And the, the carrot principle, um, when did the, the issue of recognition having an impact on the bottom line? Perhaps it didn't start out that way. I mean, as I understand the O.C. Tanner started, there's sort of a jewelry as a lapel pin. Absolutely. Re recognition, but more for the lapel, perhaps, than the recognition. <laughs> yes, and as lapels disappeared, we, uh, we adjusted. And, and the company now, really, the premise of the company is we appreciate great work. Because we know when you appreciate great work, that great work will be repeated. And sort of the offshoot of that was, as we started publishing that, was the birth of the Carrot Culture Group, which said a carrot culture or a culture of appreciation is a, is a culture that's welcoming, that's rewarding, where people want to go to work every day and they want to produce at a very high level. So that was the premise. And intuitively, you kind of know that's true. Yep. But when we started to really dig down into the data, even we were surprised at the, at the dramatic impact, simple thank yous, award presentations, you know, well thought out uh, awards and gifts for years of service, for going above and beyond, for sales, for, for new hires. Even we were surprised at the dramatic impact when done right that has on your bottom line. Well, and, and when you did that survey or study, how did you put something like that together? I mean, in and of itself, it must have been groundbreaking. Well, it was. We had some great partners. Uh, the Jackson Group, which now is part of HealthStream, gave us access to this huge database, over 10 years of data, over 200,000 surveys. We supplemented it with some of our own surveys uh, across various industries, looking specifically at the impact of recognition and appreciation, the power of the carrot, if you will, in the workplace. And it was interesting because the PhDs and, you know, Adrian Gostick, my co-author, we, uh -huh. we're not PhDs, right. will admit we were in the half of the stats class that made the upper half of the class possible. <laughs> you put the P in PhD. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, our job is to make it uh, understandable and simple and easy to apply. And show the difference 
between a PhD and somebody like you and Adrian. Exactly. And this is your book. And we have done it very well, by the Thank way. Thank you very much. Um, but what we really, they were even surprised that they'd never looked at the data this way before to look at the impact of recognition. Another big aha we had was that managers that were high recognizers excelled in four leadership attributes. We call them the basic four. They were better goal setters. They were better communicators. They had very high levels of trust. And as you know, now more than ever, trust in the workplace is, is on the wane. But lastly, that they held people accountable. And so this is no longer the softer side of being a leader. If you recognize you're not gonna be seen as the pushover, if you're gonna build a great team, if you're gonna build a great company, you have to understand the power of recognition. And take us back briefly, because I think uh, when you build a foundation for recognition uh, and accountability, how did you determine the, four, the, the basic four? I mean, because there are a lot of leadership books out. We talked to a lot right. of people who could, who could uh, add maybe a dozen or uh, even more sure. reasons, uh, the, the background. How did, what the basic? Well, we didn't, we didn't set out, actually, to look for the basic four of leadership. What we found as we started looking at the data, and this was brought to us by, again, the PhDs, said, you know, what we're finding is there are four areas where high recognizers jump up way above the norm. Uh, we use the Pearson correlation coefficient. There, I'll throw that at hey, you. Hey, that's good. I like that. I like that. <laughs> that makes You're me sound like I really know me. what I'm that's doing. Right. I'm an English major, so and, I understand. Uh, Pearson coefficient? Yeah, Pearson correlation coefficient. Correlation, very. Which yeah. was, correlators aren't necessarily causal. For example, if we took the thousands, a thousand speeders in the last, you know, a few, well, we're in New York, the past few minutes. Um, okay. And we found that 40% uh, of the speeders had blue eyes. That's a correlation, but it doesn't mean that if you have blue eyes that you're necessarily a speeder. However, there are correlations that are so high as to be irrefutable. For example, if we found in those 1,000 speeding tickets issued that 999 were caused by drivers between the ages of 17 and 21, well, that's something that insurance companies use that's so far above the norm as to be um, causal. So what happened with the uh, researchers at, uh, at the Jackson organization and now HealthStream is that they, they determined the basic four. We didn't look for that. They said, hey, you should take a look at that. This is really pretty interesting. And the correlation is so high as to, as to be irrefutable. It would be, in fact, what they said is that it would almost be impossible for a leader to excel in these four basic areas and not have extremely high scores in recognition as well. Mention those four again, because I know that one of the aspect, one of the four, the last, accountability, uh, made a difference. That 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 as is is a highlighted basic four because maybe it runs counterintuitive to reinforcement or acknowledgement or recognition. Well, here's another thing that we found, and this and this was brought to fore in our latest uh, studies as well, is that highly engaged employees, highly productive employees, want to be held accountable. I mean, how great is that? They're the ones that are saying, hey, how am I doing, how am I doing, how am I doing? They're the ones that make sure they get their six-month review in their annual review. And so this idea of accountability, but holding employees accountable in a positive way, not the stick, right, but the carrot, saying, hey, I, I, Paul, I saw you doing something really great, and I reward you for that and reinforce that good behavior. So what we loved about accountability was this really isn't the soft side of being a leader. Holding people accountable is a hard thing. Now, the other part that we found that was fascinating in the basic four was the highest correlator was trust. So people say, well, is it all carrots and no sticks? Don't you have the tough conversation? We say, no, no, obviously not. But if your levels of trust are high and you've been holding people accountable along the way, when you have to have that tough conversation, it's much more effective because I trust that you're doing it to make me a better employee, to make our team better, not because you've got a bigger title and just because you can. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. I mean, it, it all folds together in partly because I've read the book twice now. <laughs> so I, I'm a believer. We certainly want to get to two very important things. One is what has changed in a couple of years in the book, in the carrot principle. What have you and Adrian learned and how have you applied that? And secondly, for the sake of uh, mo most of the books, frankly, that we review here, most of the p experts who we talk to on McLaughlin at work, we want to know how the world has changed in your perspective and how the principles applied then 
are valid or need to be changed from where we are today. And certainly recognition must be one of those. Right. Well, I'll tell you what's, what's, what's fascinating is our business has actually uh, never been better. We've never been more sought, uh, sought out, particularly with this economic downturn. Great companies are understanding that their employees aren't liabilities. They're sources of intelligence. They're the people that are going to pull them out of this recession. They're important. They, they're important. <laughs> they, they, they actually are, 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 are going to be the people that make the difference because they interact with your customers every day. They're the ones that are going to come up with the new processes and, and, the, and, and the new ideas. So, so that has changed pretty, pretty dramatically, actually, particularly in light of the fact that companies don't feel like they're in the position to give big cash bonuses or raises or promotions. So in lieu of that, they're looking more and more, what can we do to create a better environment? Okay, so I want to, I want to get to that in a second, but sure. I want to lay the groundwork from your uh, first work. And one of the shibboleths that I think you dismissed in the first book, and it often, it often is dismissed mostly in treatises, and that is that money's not the answer. That's true. But still, people still believe that money's the answer. Well, it, But it, 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 it takes the carrot principle and people like yourself as uh, profits about the value or not of money, and now maybe the current environment right. to make to take money off the table. Well, first off, I've got to say your English background is coming out. Shibboleths and tristes. These are great words. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely need to include them in our next book. But, uh, but, but it is true. I mean, money has always been important. It's the ticket to get people in the door and always has been. If you don't pay people fairly, if you're not within your competitive range in your industry, you're just not going to get people to show up, period. But once that is taken care of, and that's the very you know bottom of the pyramid, then that's, Ma that's Maslow's theory. Exactly, yeah. bottom of the pyramid for Maslow. You've taken care of the necessities. Then this idea of engagement, uh, a sense of well-being, building trust, you know, pride in the corporate symbol, these all become very, very important in engaging the hearts and minds of your employees, and and building this, you know, culture where uh, appreciating great work occurs on a regular basis. And in one of the great principles of the uh, first edition of the Carrot Principle, and reminding the good listeners of McLaughlin at Work that I'm speaking with Chester Elton, and he is the co-author with Adrian Gostick of the Carrot Principle, now a national bestseller in its second uh, iteration, how the best managers use recognition to engage their people, retain talent, and accelerate performance. I... Uh, accent the accelerate because I think that was one of the terms that you introduced into the business jargon if you will uh, yes just a couple of years back what, what, what is how do you what, what does it mean to accelerate performance using the carrot principle well he here's where we really dispelled an old myth and that was that saying thank you and and doing these kinds of things was the softer side of business it was a nice to have you know if if you could do it if you had a good year you had some extra money you'd throw the party or you'd give out the the bomber jackets or whatever what what we found was is good managers actually great managers that did this on a regular basis not only did they get to their business goals but they got to them faster so this idea of it it accelerated business results if you really wanted to get people engaged a more rapid return on investment exactly i mean it's the easy pass to your goals for those of you that've got to go through the toll booths <laughs> and we do that a lot in new jersey and new yeah. york I mean, it's just this really simple principle that your mother taught you when you were a little kid, and that was to remember to say thank you, to value people, clean up after yourself. Write a thank you note. And write a thank you note, yeah. You know, for the little knit sweater that you got when you were a kid that you wore for the picture to send to grandma and then never wore again. But did you thank her for it? Absolutely, because the intention was there, the intent was good. Those simple principles that somehow when we get into business, we get too busy, we get too preoccupied, we, 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 we think that people do it for the paycheck. They do it for their own personal self-satisfaction. Wrong. You know, it, you want to accelerate business results, appreciate people. And, and we go into detail in the book as to how to do that. You know, the building blocks, the frequent, specific, and timely, the practical nature because general praise has no impact on people. And, and you know this. People will walk in and say, hey, great job, great job. Job. You rock. Love the hair. Hey, you wacky guy. That has no impact. But if you tie it, you know, if you align it with your corporate goals, on-time delivery, zero defects, extraordinary customer service, and you're rewarding that on a regular basis. Specificity. It's not the softer side. It's the critical part. It's now goes from being a nice to have 
really to being a must-have if you're going to build a great workplace environment and, and, and excel in, in your particular business niche. Or niche. I don't know how you would say that. You're the English major. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're just across the river. I, I, know, I, I, think it, I think it depends on where you're from and whether you have a niche. <laughs> exactly. you, guys, you guys certainly do. Um, a couple of uh, maybe general questions. Um, of the companies that are the best companies to work for in America by surveys that come out from Fortune magazine or others. Sure. Um, are they, is there a direct correlation by Pearson or otherwise with recognition? Well, here's what's fascinating is to even qualify to submit your company for those, that kind of rigor. They ask you, do you have an, a recognition strategy? How do you reward and engage your employees? And if you say, no, we don't do that, we just pay really well, you, you're not even considered to be on those lists. Do they send those, those people to, uh, to OC Tanner? <laughs> you know, they don't, but they should. <laughs> they should. <laughs> they really I'll tell you, should. That's a new, client, a new customer and client base. Absolutely. So that, um, so that that's a prerequisite, is, is, it is. having It's a qualifier. Yeah. And if you answer no to that, then you're summarily dismissed. Um, another general question, and I noticed it was in the book, and, and I must say in going through the book, uh, two comments, two observations about the book that I think we should encourage people, even if they have the first version, to buy the second, is the graphics, I think, are, are updated, clearly are updated, right. make it easier to read. Um, but also, there are a number of, of, of books that we have that are that we we talk to experts about, which are extraordinarily good books, but they are a lot thinner than uh, in substance. They may have a core idea that's basically a New Yorker article, right? Uh, but but not a whole book. You've managed really to put some to, some meat and potatoes into the carrot principle. Well, we like to refer to it as the sizzle and the steak. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but but uh, not to uh, the listeners, it's not a huge book. I mean, we could have written a 350-page book. We could have. But, you know, Adrian and I both decided that the books that we liked the most were the ones that told the story in about 100 to 150 pages. Mm -hmm. You know, that's an easy read. And like you say, I mean, uh, we like to put in a lot of graphs. A picture really is worth a thousand words. But it does show trends and visibly shows you the impact that doing things right can have. So I appreciate you pointing that out. We try to be very concise in our writing, give you practical things to, to apply, but backing up with the data. And I think that's the difference between, you know, the parable book or the book based on basically a good article where you can say, hey, we, we, die, we, we, we took a deep dive into the numbers and these were the ahas that we had and here's how you can apply them in your workplace. So it becomes not just theoretical but very practical at the same time. Yeah, and, and you do and you do show various steps to take to take the naked, unwashed, and unwanted, and move them into <laughs> the promised land of having a a better a better organization. What? And I want to get shortly to how things have changed because people are, I find in in uh, in my business that that people have an under, and maybe it's more that you and I are in the New York metropolitan area where I think the depression has gripped the city more here than certainly you travel around the country. Yeah, and very dramatically. You... I mean, Wall Street, I mean, it's here. It's here. You know, banking is here. Uh, I just spoke uh, last week to a group of lawyers for the first time in anybody's memory. Law firms yes. are starting to downsize and so on. So there is a lot of fear and trepidation out there as, you know, when will the next shoe drop? You know, I, I, every one of us has a friend or someone we know who has been part of this economic downturn. And so this, this idea of the survivors, how do we keep them engaged? How do we appreciate our jobs and appreciate our employees and try to save as many jobs as we can? I, I think you're right. Here in the New York area in particular, it's very prevalent. Yes. And, and it's, um, it's sort of a foundation stone. People are concerned fundamentally. Right. And, and I'm not sure that we've seen, notwithstanding the recent uptick in quote the market it's it's pretty thin and people are concerned but back to 2007 and when you put the book together uh, what was the what was the uh, first when you brought the, brought it out and in the discussions that you have and you have examples in the book and I'd like you to give a couple of those stories sure what were the what were the leaders who were not what what are the major kinds of concerns that they said I shouldn't do it because I shouldn't recognize because yeah well actually and, and I want you to and I want you to when you say that I'd like you to then 
show how this is different in this current economy. So what was it like back then? Well, you know, back then, actually, economics were Not that long ago. (laughs) And and it wasn't that long ago. I mean, in very recent memory, uh, I have uh, ties that are uh, still uh, in fashion. Um, But but here's what would happen is people would say, okay, we've got this money, we can do a few things and so on. But again, they treated it as a a nice to have. They didn't have a discipline behind it. Uh, They didn't have a strategy behind it. And, And they really didn't believe it. Uh, you know, quite frankly, they'd say, look, we're very busy. You know, the, the the number one answer when we would ask people, why don't you do it more often? You know it's the right thing to do. The number one answer pretty much is, I just don't have time. Well, you know, Paul, when people tell you things like that, when they say they don't have time, what they're telling you is, I don't think it's important. Because if we think it's important, we'll make time to do it. And I always love to do this when I'm speaking. I said, you know, how many of you say just, you just don't have time? Say, great. How many of you are golfers that don't have time? Say, great. And then you're just slammed. Okay, I'll tell you what. I have got a tea time with Tiger Woods tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Could you make time for Tiger? <laughs> and, you know, you universally, well, if it's Tiger, you know. So, again, the idea, what's changed from then to now is... I think people really are looking for every little advantage they can. And now they're looking at recognition saying, okay, maybe it's not the Rolex watch that we could have given away two years ago or the the trip to Vegas with your family. But we understand that we've got to find ways to engage those employees and we've got to find a way over and above money to make sure it's effective. And so that's, that's probably the biggest change is they've really come to the conclusion, we don't have the money, but we know we have a need. How do we do it? And is it, in fact, in your judgment, more important now? More important than ever because you're doing more with less. You can't give the big bonus. You can't necessarily give the big promotion, but you need those people more than ever. You may have downsized by 10 or 15%. The work doesn't go away. You just have fewer people to do it with. So here's in the new findings and in the second edition, we really looked at engagement and we found there were three big drivers. And and, and this can be found on our website. We can give you more information. There literally was so much. And and your website, if people want to buy the book and then go to your website or go to your website, (laughs) and then buy the book thanks so much for asking Uh, yeah it's very simple it's carrots.com make sure you put the s on the end it's carrots plural Mm -hmm. dot com and there's all kinds of fun free downloads and and white papers and more information uh, around the research but there's been a a good practice out there on how do you engage employees and it was pretty much understood that uh, opportunity and a sense of well-being was the number one driver in other words I have an opportunity to develop my skills and perhaps move up in the company. But I also have this sense of well-being, that the company cares about me as an individual. Number one driver of engagement. Number two driver, not surprisingly. A sense of well-being. A sense of well-being. My company cares about me as an individual. Okay. Okay. Number two driver, again, uh, fairly uh, well documented, was trust. And you would guess that would be very high if you don't trust your immediate supervisor or certainly the direction of your company. Your odds of staying there or doing great work go way down. Much to the surprise of the researchers and much to our delight, the number three driver is pride in the corporate symbol. Now, Symbol qua symbol. Yeah. The, the carrot that exactly. you guys have. Right. I mean, I, you know, and, and for example, um, you know, I live in a banking town, Summit, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year ago... Financial if, services, broadly read. Right. And a year ago, if you ask someone at a social gathering, uh, you know, what do you do for a living? And they said, oh, I work at Merrill Lynch. You'd say, oh, man, you've got it made. That's what, The bull, that rocks. That's awesome. Well, now if you're in a social gathering and somebody says, well, I work for Merrill Lynch, we've been in quite... You politely excuse yourself and say, oh, that poor man. <laughs> right. <laughs> that poor woman. <laughs> you know. So Times they, have changed. Right. Times have changed. Pride in that corporate symbol. So... So again, quick review. So opportunity and well-being, trust, and pride in the corporate symbol. So we said, great. What are the drivers of those? How do I get there? Which is the big question. Well, the number one driver of pride in the corporate symbol is alignment. Again, this specificity. Oh, and oh, by the way, um, pride in the symbol. Symbols are are great in recognition uh, strategies. Uh, You know, the difference between a gift and and, and an award many times is that symbol, Mm -hmm. right? So what we found is that... um, 55% of the employees we surveyed said they owned nothing of value with their corporate symbol on it. Huge missed opportunity. And only 23% of the organizations we surveyed actually used their symbol in their awards programs. Again, a huge missed opportunity. So what drives that? Alignment. Alignment 
is a lot like accountability. You know, our alignment is this perfect on-time delivery or perfect production of product. Who, um, who within the corporate culture would have been responsible for that alignment before Messrs. Elton and Kostick <laughs> arrived? No, I mean, you know, it's always curious as, no, as to... It's an excellent it's, question. It's, it's like... Um, you know, who, who's the risk manager when, when right. obviously the risk was done all wrong? In this case, I, I would have thought that there would have been people who would have said, how do we deal with alignment and why aren't we putting the Mercedes-Benz sticker? Yeah? Lever? Well, here's, here's part of the problem, Paul, is that when times are good, you know, growth and profits cover up a lot of sins, right? right? All of a sudden, when that's all stripped away, it's kind of like, hey, how did we miss this? Right. And generally speaking, it should come from your president, your CEO, the guardian of that corporate symbol that stands for goodness, truth and beauty and, and you know, everything good in the world. Um, a lot of times it comes to your communi communication department, sometimes even your HR department. Right. That is the guardian of that symbol. But to, to go back to our little schematic. Yep. Is Which is on page 148. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. yeah for those of you who follow me at it, and, and uh, you can follow along in your hymnal. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the number one driver of trust was communication. Well, you know, we've always talked about recognition as being the great communicator. Somebody does something well, we reward them in front of their peers one-on-one, -on -one, however we do that, and as a great reinforcer of that positive behavior. So think about what we've just talked about. Trust, communication, alignment, and accountability are three of the basic four. But where it got really good is we said, well, what's the number one influencer? What's the number one driver of the number one driver? This idea of opportunity and well-being. And it was much to our delight Simply recognition, <laughs> and that that was Pearson's variables uh, correlation was the one. That, this wasn't this wasn't written in the chap first chapter of the research. No, report. in fact, w we really did the research to just say, hey, tell us what it is, because we we want to do all we can, uh, particularly in these economic downturns, to really engage that employee. We believe that the employees will pull us through if we just ask them and engage them. And so we were very, and again, you know, we've got all these great researchers who looked at this data in all these different ways, had never looked at pride in the symbol, had never looked at recognition before, and were quite shocked. And of course, we were quite delighted. We say that recognition, or the carrot, is not the silver bullet, because everybody's grasping for this. You know, what's the one thing we can do? You know, it's hard work is the silver bullet. It's, you know, paying your dues. But what we like to refer to recognition is that it's the secret sauce. It's that thing that accelerates business results. It's that very, you know, common thing you should do that's uncommonly practiced that really does make the difference and makes all the difference to the individual, that makes all the difference to your team, and then teams ratchet up to your organization and your company. In the current climate where clearly trust has been broken, that yes. people who appeared to be trustworthy turned out not to be, and that people who followed leaders who seemed to have their hand on the tiller turned out that they did not. Right. What does that do to the model? Well, the, f the first thing it does is it breaks trust. You know, which is you know, this huge driver of engagement. There's huge disappointment. And you know, even in personal relationships, when you've broken trust, it is, it is a monumental task to rebuild that. And we've seen companies that just simply don't recover. You know, Enron never did recover. Arthur Anderson never did recover. WorldCom, you know, uh, that were these great brands that everyone had all this faith in. And also, when that happens, it destroys this sense of well-being. I've trusted you with my career. You've broken trust, and now all these opportunities, this sense that you really did care about me as an employee, it's all gone. And then, of course, your symbol, there's no pride in the symbol. It becomes a mockery. You know, it went from the Enron E to the crooked E. Right. And they even made a movie about it, right? It, it didn't stand for forward-thinking innovation. It stood for corruption. Are there, uh, are there, when recognition is done, are there poor, can recognition not be done well? Oh, and, and it's, it's done badly. In a heartbeat. Oh, all over the place. <laughs> you know, where, where there's a, an award uh, ceremony and they use the opportunity to make it a, uh, a, a, a peer review. <laughs> you know, we're here, to, we're here to honor Paul for all his good work. And isn't it amazing because you remember when he started how terrible he was or, 
you know. Um, Puts it, the last 90 degrees on 360. Exactly. Or, or, or you check people off. You know, you pull the team together and say, okay, look, orders need to be on time. Um, we need to get breakage down. And, oh, by the way, we've got a nice award for Sam. Congratulations, Sam. By the way, what was that for? You know, they've, they've missed the opportunity to treat the employee like a VIP. And we, and we teach that, you know, that it's what was the value what was the impact? Tell me about the person. You know, if you're going to give recognition, it needs to be a positive. You don't give recognition and then criticize. You know, at, at the Academy Awards, they don't pull them up and present them the award and then say, boy, you, you know, I'll, I'll bet you're really proud of this movie because your last four have been real stinkers, haven't they? You know, it's the celebration of that behavior. It's all positive. Keep, exactly. Keep, keep the negatives out. You know, it raises it raises a question, though, and, and, and you, you are in the unique perhaps unique or rare position to address it. And that is, for everything that has happened over the last six months, does the model of, of uh, opportunity, well-being, trust, organizational symbol tied to a, a corporation, are pe- people, in your, in your judgment, are people more leery of organizations in organizational behavior because so many seemingly bulletproof organizations have crumbled. You know, are, we, are we heading back to, forget the recognition, I'll do my job, I'll stay within my sphere. Would, would somebody who has, everybody's been burned in some way or other, or knows somebody who has been burned, what has happened to trust, well-being, and the organizational symbol when it's not really clear whether any of them are gold-plated. Right. I think people are becoming more and more wary of the big corporation. And that's why you're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial, a lot of smaller, mid-sized companies where you really feel like you've got more control and more impact. You know, when you're one of hundreds of thousands, it's harder to say, hey, what I did actually made a difference today, as opposed to when you're part of an organization that's maybe a few hundred employees, and we know everybody's name, and we actually know everybody's spouse, and we actually know their kids. So I think that there is a little more... um, leeriness, if that's even a word, around the larger corporations, that they're not as safe a haven as they used to be. But you remember that even these big corporations that are stumbling, there still are literally hundreds that are not, and that are still great places to work. Right. You know, we talk about in the book. Well, sure, if, if, if unempl- as people always point out, if unemployment goes to double digit, you still have 85 to 80 Eight percent of America that's employed. Exactly. You know, I, I, I love that analogy to say, well, you know, unemployment's at ten percent. Say, great. What are we doing about the ninety percent that are still going to work? Let's focus on that. But you know, in the book, as you mentioned, we've got some great examples of, of corporations that have done it well and are are surviving and not only surviving, thriving. You know, KPMG is a great example in the book. Um, Pepsi Bottling Group, Quest Diagnostics. These are all uh, companies we've done work with and do it extremely well. Joe's Crab Shack. I was just down in Dallas at uh, Medical City of Dallas, where they they find unique and, and really fun ways to recognize their employees. They're one of the companies that still give out turkeys at Thanksgiving, <laughs> you know, which has kind of gone by the wayside. Um, but they do wonderful things with with their employees, services that are on site, and and it does come down from from their leadership. You know, Britt Baird is is much celebrated. You know, you've got Eric Foss at. Uh, at uh, Pepsi Bottling Group, who really does care. You know, they get together as a leadership and say, we've got to be more innovative. We've got to find ways to save money because that will save jobs. You know, Quest Diagnostic, who are phlebotomists. There's a great word. That'll get you <laughs> That's a one of those pH right. starts, That's right. right. Yeah, and, thank uh, you. You know, people are, are, are drawing blood and a very intimate kind of thing. And they've got their employees engaged about that they matter, that they care, and we care about you. And they've had great success. For the vast just the vast majority of american companies what 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 a fortune 500 fortune 1000 of the fortune first 5 fortune 500 how many of them would you say use recognition well? You know, that's a great question. I've never and, and then the 500 to 1,000. Yeah, 500 to 1,000. I will tell you this, and, and I don't want to break it you up. You don't have to company. be right. You can, you well, can answer any way you want. Uh, 17. You know, this is number <laughs> <laughs> 17. Chester Elton, I mean, yeah, right. you, you hold the data. <laughs> right. But, but I will tell you this. Some of the startling data we came up with is that 74% of employees surveyed said they got no recognition in the last 12 months. I mean, none. 74%. So wow. three out of four. Okay. And, and, that, and that's a big number. However, we did well, That's find, a big void that can be filled pretty, pretty well, quickly. It's a huge Just give them an attaboy. Yeah, exactly. 79% of employees, and these are great numbers, 79% of employees that left the job said they didn't leave because of money. They left because of the workplace environment, because of their immediate supervisor. 
right? But what we did find is that almost 95%, ask me how I remember this, 94.4%, I used to write it on my hand, <laughs> um, of employees that were highly engaged said they worked in a high recognizing or a, or, or a carrot culture where good work is appreciated. So, I mean, to break that down by company is difficult, but break it down to the individual. And you can see there are huge opportunities for not just American business. You know, the study that we did, we, we did it in 13 countries around the world. Really, thank you in any culture is good business. It's nuanced and you've got to know your employees as to how to reward them. You know, there's a big difference between giving WrestleMania tickets and tickets to the opera. Mm -hmm. Those are two different, you know, right. employees. But people that do it well get superior results. It is the right thing to do, not just to build a better community and a better society, but to build better businesses. And, and I think, you know, as we're, as we're kind of winding down here, I, I would encourage our, our listeners, don't just use it in the workplace. Use it at home. Write a thank you note to your kids. Write a thank you note to the Boy Scout leader or the baseball coach or your, or your Sunday school teacher. Do this. Write, write your spouse a love note. Just and, don't and, and don't email it. Don't email. Don't email it. <laughs> don't, don't and email. don't put it through the, uh, the 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 mail meter. You know, actually put a stamp on it, and you'd be shocked. You know, one of the things we talk about is this power of the handwritten note. Oh, and say. people save them. The, the, they put e them in their the well, the email has opened that opportunity up. Yeah, it's very retro, but to actually get a nice card that's very thoughtfully written, that's specific, and that actually has a stamp on it. It goes a long way and means a lot to people because the messaging, again, back to the communication is, I care about you, I took the time, I made it personal, and, and you're valued and you're appreciated. It's great stuff. It is great stuff. And uh, the, the color on the book? Definitely orange. Join the orange revolution. Yeah. I, I don't know if we'll ever get a shot of this, but the orange socks really are okay. dramatic. Yeah, we'll we'll you put know? that in there. We'll, we'll have that. <laughs> We're going to start, I think, the orange sock club. I think when you start wearing orange socks, it means you're all in. That's right. And in, in, in rapid order, you could probably sell out the orange socks that are in America. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, <laughs> They're hard to find, but here's what you're going to find, Paul. When you do find them, they're always on sale. <laughs> <laughs> and they always come in pairs, presumably. Exactly. Occasionally, you might have one that had an extra one. They give you three socks for the price of two. Um, uh, Chester Elton, delightful to see you again. Good luck with uh, the – how does one describe this? It's, it's updated. has powerful new results. It's the uh, revised edition. Revised edition. And actually, if you go online and you go to the bookstores, it, it's the only one you're going to find. It's uh, – you know, we, we, we sold so many of the old uh, version that now the new uh, copy is what you'll find. And it does have updated data. It's got uh, a new forward. There's the brilliant chapter on engagement. And in the back, there's actually directly to the website – all this idea of the free downloads, some great podcasts we've done to our blogs, you know, adriangostick.com, chesterelton.com, where we're constantly finding these great ideas and great practitioners. We put them up. It's free. It's fun. It makes a difference. Please, you know, get to the point where you treat people better, not just because you think it's a good business practice, but it's just the right thing to do. Thank you for joining me on McLaughlin at Work, your premier audio guide to the workplace, the work walk. Speaking with Adrian Gostick, good luck with the carrot principle. Uh, excuse Actually, me, to Adrian Chester. Is Chester, the, my to Chester. I love looking at it because I, I have Adrian's name on my mind. And, he does uh, get top billing, and he <laughs> that's, should. That's all right. Uh, Chester Elton, thank you very much. Thank you. Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk. McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. Speaking to an author, and uh, I guess it's fair to call Eddie Erlinson an old friend. He is the author with Kate Littleman uh, of the alpha male syndrome. I'm going to let uh, Dr. Erlinson uh, describe the book. He and I talked about it when it first came out in October of 2006 uh, when we were doing the Crow Show. Now we're on McLaughlin at work, and I thought it would be uh, fun and uh, revealing to see how the alpha male syndrome, as it was written and how it was developed and how it perpetuates itself here in an entirely different environment in 2009. Eddie Erlinson, welcome to McLaughlin at Work. Thank you, Paul. It's good to, be, good to be back and good to be talking to you, as always. Uh, bring us up to date. 2006, October, seems like yesterday, but when history is written, it's going to be at the front end of uh, the bust. Yes. Well, I mean, I think, I think leadership is alive and well. And alpha leadership, if we want to use that term, I think is definitely alive and well, too, both from a few snippets of the downside of 
of what people might refer to as the alpha male, alpha male or the alpha leader behavior, as well as many, many, many of the upsides. And uh, just to, re- to remind uh, you know, our listeners that our interest as executive coaches and leadership consultants in the alpha leader, as it was not termed by us but for us, goes back many, many years. <clears throat> and really was an, uh, really an admiration and respect for those individuals, both male and female, who just seem to have a extra natural or extraordinary wiring to drive for results, to get things done, to make contributions, to get people around them to uh, uh, do the same by both inspiration and drive, and basically, uh, they are, according to our research, uh, in well, at least Western business world, about 70% of the leaders, uh, both male and female. Remind us that they, we discovered three things about them. Uh, one is that they were quite hyper-competitive, uh, both with themselves and each other at times. They were hyper-urgent, uh, that is, uh, impatient, needed to get things done, and that's why they got a lot done. They asked for a lot and uh, tended to get a lot. And uh, also had probably more of that assertive, aggressive style to drive for results. Those were the three overriding alpha characteristics. We were much more interested, I think, also in that not all strong leaders are the same, and could we define some flavors of alphas. And we were very pleased to find in our validated research, which now has 14,000 people in our database of the alpha assessment, that there are indeed four kinds of alphas. Most of us are hybrids. So the four kinds are the commander alpha, who is certainly the take the hill, take charge. If you're not with me, you're against me. A very charismatic, uh, kind of the typical alpha that you might have thought of. The second was the alpha visionary, and we see more and more alpha visionaries. These are the people who see around the corners of the future. They certainly have more new and different ideas in a day than I might have in a year, and they actually believe that most of their ideas are should be executed on and are very, very good, <laughs> so they can tend to oversell things at times. But... Uh, these are truly a, a major portion of some of our leadership now. Now, if you if you stay with visionaries for a moment, are those the people who are now expected to look past the corner of 2009, 2010? And uh, in, in your description of the four, is that visionary somebody who is uh, maybe wired the same but different at the margin from what you found in your research that preceded the book? alpha male syndrome that came out in uh, the fall of 2006. Well, I don't know if visionaries have changed. I mean, they are always, they live in the world of possibilities. And the good thing about visionaries in the world of possibilities and what might happen or could happen is that they're often, they're the solution creators. They take a problem and they say, well, here are, here's uh, 10 solutions, <laughs> 10 possibilities. Now, Nine out of the ten might be very impractical or might not work, but the one out of ten can be a really, really good one. So I think the visionaries, are, are they tend to be quite optimistic. They tend to see that we're not going to be where we are forever. And I think the visionaries are kind of, can be the leaders during down times as well. Uh, visionaries can get us in trouble. Uh, you can sort of say, well, you know, we... Uh, were some of the things that happened uh, in the finance world, just real visionary ideas about what could work and, uh, you know, uh, got us in trouble in the credit world? I don't know, but uh, I think visionaries are solution people. Okay. Your third type? The third type are the strategists. These are the people who are, are very, very smart, tend to have very quick mental maps. They tend to pull the dots together quite quickly. And uh, and they basically are generally quite analytic. They go on the basis of the data, and uh, they're very very common in the, in the corporate leadership world. They uh, not only are probably the smartest people in the world in the room, but they'd like you to know that. 
and in fact, uh, and, and that's and that's uh, particularly part of what the syndrome is, I assume. That's part of the downside of the syndrome. <laughs> I mean, uh, they love ideas, especially their own. Uh, if they will tend to be hypercritical of other ideas, and then maybe a week or two later, it'll come back as their idea. Uh, but they can be real strong leaders, but sometimes challenging to work with because they are so. Uh, Oh, they can be mentally daunting and create a bit of a, a vigilant culture around them. The, th the fourth type is the alpha executor. And these people will and always will be, I think, strong, strong leaders in the uh, uh, corporate world, the government world, and so on. These are the people who get things done. Uh, and a matter of fact, they seem to get them done with a certain process and a certain checklist style which can at times be overbearing and drive people crazy. Because remember, they not only want to get things done, but they want to get it done yesterday. Right. And they're always kind of hounding themselves and other people. But if you're willing to learn and work with executors, you can make your output far greater than it might have been without them. Isn't that one of the, uh, isn't one of the characteristics, and I'm picking up on your words, <clears throat> remembering two and a half years ago, isn't driving other people crazy kind of a common theme through all four? Well, I mean, that's, remember, each of these four have the upside and they have the underbelly. And I think any strength taken to an excess uh, can, can, can become a weakness. So we see we certainly want to promote and, uh, and enhance the upside, and we want to kind of take the rough edges off the downside. And, but they all have they all have downsides and they all have tremendous upsides and the goal is to I think I think of this now more in terms of what we are more free to talk about as the emotional intelligence factor of a successful senior executive. Yep. The, that uh, is the EI. To me, the EI is probably more, far more important than we ever talked about. And here's where it plays in, Paul. The EI, to me, is the ability to do just two things at the same time. Now, let me give you a sense of what those two things are. One is to be fully engaged, driving for results, thinking, coming up with solutions, following through, doing projects, uh, doing initiatives. That's the engagement part of emotional intelligence. But what they need to be able to do simultaneously at the same time is to be a, an observer, an effective observer as to how the engagement is going. How effective is it? And then they have to have the skill of not only being an observer, but being able to adjust on the fly. So that's a, sort of the third characteristic, is fully engaged and observer. Fully engaged and, and being an observer, but then as, as an observer, they're able to adjust on the fly so that whether you're a, a commander or a strategist or a visionary or an executor, you could say, hmm, I see that this is only working to a certain degree. I'm going to shift and customize my style to continue to get the most out of people around me and myself. And that ability to adjust and to be aware, I think, is the true skill of the alpha. Some of them have lots of it. <laughs> Those are the really strong alphas and the most productive alphas. Some of the alphas are quite well known for having very little of it. As you remember, I am an alpha. Right. <laughs> I always say I'm an alpha in progress. I was a cardiovascular surgeon. Well, surgeons are not known for a lot of the uh, EI factor sometimes. Right. Having just gone through a discectomy within the last couple of weeks, I can identify with that comment. Right. So we are able to be fully engaged. We're very self-confident. We kind of know what needs to be done. We're happy to tell you uh, quite bluntly at times. And, uh, and, and even do it you for do you. It. But we're, it we're not always known. You can do it with a knife in your hand. <laughs> not always known for doing it, being able to pick up the nuances of all the things that go into an illness and a recovery. And that's the emotional intelligence skill. And I think that that is the skill set, and it's a learnable skill set. I want to reinforce that. It's a learnable skill set of the alpha. Uh, let, me, let me digress for a minute, just, just stay on point with you, 
specifically since my most recent experience. Since you are a, a surgeon, um, no longer obviously in practice, um, do you have part of your worth ethic cor- corporation that you and Kate uh, Ludeman, your wife, uh, practice out of? Do you have uh, the medical profession as some of your clients? Uh, about, about 10% of my client base is, is in the medical profession. Okay. Having, are you having any success with your surgeon colleagues? Well, I'll just say this is my opinion, but I'm close to it, that I think the medical profession, physicians as well as, as health care administrators, are in some ways some of our toughest, toughest customers from the standpoint of being able to make some of the needed changes that would make them much more effective influencers and leaders. Now, partly it's because early on in physician training, you you do adopt certain identities, certain patterns, so what you might call personas, that allow you to deal with a lot of times the surprises and the kind of the horrific aspects of disease and illness and trauma, but then sometimes they detach you from your own curiosity, from your own ability to adjust and learn and lead things better. Now having a daughter who is graduating from the University of Kentucky Medical School uh, next month, I'm proud to say that I think it's changing. So uh, I think one of the proudest things I proudest moments I have of my daughter is that she actually saw the need for leadership skill development in her medical school curriculum, and it wasn't there. And she and a colleague uh, formed a leadership legacy program at the University of Kentucky Medical School where they really help each other learn the skills of being a leader, not just the skills of being a physician or a, a medical scientist. So I think things are changing, Paul. That's great. Did uh, is she gone through her match and is heading someplace else? She's uh, staying at the University of Kentucky in the physical medicine and rehabilitation. Great. I may come down and see her. Yeah, she'll. Uh, <laughs> she is a good one. <laughs> now tell me, um, and you're obviously very kind with your time here. It's great to catch up. Uh, you were articulate uh, when I first met you, and that hasn't been lost. Bring us up to date on how, in your coaching. Uh, profession, how things have changed between the fall of 06 and the spring, not here yet, baseball season delayed in some places because of snow yesterday, um, the spring of 2009. Educate us as to, given the alpha male syndrome and perhaps the problems that it brought to us, not laying it all of it on there, but what is what has it meant to you as a coach and the subjects with whom you have worked through this entire period? Yeah, great question. So let me start with this. I think that one of the great detractors to learning and improvement, whether it be as individuals or as executives and leaders, is success. And I say, well, why could that be a detractor? Well, because when you're having success, you always believe that everything that you actually do as a package has contributed to that success. It may only be certain portions of it, or, as a matter of fact, you could be just lucky. Well, across many, many industries now, the success has gone away. So we've had to look at what are really the key success factors that will rebuild, will rebound, will transform. And I have found every one of my executives, male and female, to be far more reflective, far more insightful, far more sobered, and actually far more committed to just being sure that they have the key leadership skill set that's going to take them and their company or their organization into the future. The did, second did, thing did, is did, I think did, they, let me just interrupt. Did the speed with which the situation deteriorated contribute to that sense of humility? Well, yeah. I mean, it was like nobody sort of saw this coming. And uh, so I think that it became incredibly sobering. I mean, all these strategies that people were, have been using habitually that they thought, well, these are the success strategies, they stopped working. Yep. And, and the second thing that's happened is that people have 
it's brought out much more true innovative thinking. Okay. And I hope innovative managing. What I love to do now is work with managers and leaders as to how they might take on a new model of management, a model that might be more in touch with the grassroots level of their organization, uh, might be more in touch with the people who are truly in trust, touch with the customers. So I see much more receptivity to kind of looking at our hierarchical directive system, which, of course, Elfas thrive in, telling people what to do, and becoming more of a listening-based uh, kind of management style. So I think those two things are happening, Paul, and I think they're both good ones. And I'm speaking with uh, Eddie uh, Erlinson, Dr. Eddie Erlinson, um, who with his uh, co-author and wife, Kate Ludeman, wrote The Alpha Male Syndrome. Um, Dr. Erlinson and I have uh, communicated recently. It's good to catch up with The Alpha Male Syndrome and put it as an overlay on the economy that we, we face today. Have has your, have you learned something from the last year, and how do you apply that to your clients, Eddie? Well, we, as you know, we sent out a little, uh, we've not done this before, but we sent out a little a tip, and we're going to do this once a month now, and send out some tips. And <clears throat> one of the things we put into this tip uh, is whether you agree with the bailout or the TARP or whatever as a political or economic philosophy or not, we ask the question of our executives, if you got some extra infusion, whether you called it bailout or, or whatever, what would you do with it? I think the stimulus is the word of the day. Yeah, I mean, what would you do with your stimulus? Would you just put it back into the same model and do it more and the same, believing that the model is really okay and it was just bad luck in the economy? Or would you actually change your model? And I think, you know, I think Kate and I have changed our model. Our model of working with people is to help them discover maybe what were the true strengths in their leadership style and where would they adjust those to get even more sustainable results. Uh, I think we were always looking for those things because we saw them, but many, many times we had to battle those uh, those rough edges that said, hey, you know, when I'm doing works, I think I'll just keep doing it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so I'm not very curious or interested in changing. I think people are much more curious now. Um, and that presumably dovetails with your comment about emotional intelligence, or EI, yeah. that being in touch with oneself also means being in touch with the, one, the, 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 the people you lead. Well, the interesting thing, Paul, is you know I'm, I'm not a psychologist. Kate's a psychologist and an engineer, but I'm basically a medical scientist. I think it's also dovetail with the knowledge that is coming out of brain mapping and brain communication syndromes and neurochemistry that we're understanding. Mm -hmm. Emotional intelligence is a anatomic and physiologic state of mind. I'm convinced of it. And you can actually develop habits, strategies, to help put yourself in the best part of your brain, your executive brain. And be sure that you have the right balance of those, you know, four big chemicals, whether they be serotonin or acetylcholine or dopamine or, or GABA. I mean, those are the neurotransmitters of executive leadership. And we now know that if you change your mind, you can change your brain. In other words, if you use certain areas of your brain, there is a neuroplasticity that allows that area of your brain to get thicker and bigger and more robust metabolically. So you want to be sure you're using the right portions of your brain. I think for a while some of us were uh, expanding the, the brainstem portion of our brain, the more limbic brain, and we're not expanding that left prefrontal cortex, and I think we're now um, doing more with that prefrontal cortex where emotional intelligence lives. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that you should raise it because just this very day, I started taking 100 milligrams of B6 to aid in the neurotransmission for my herniated disc in my back that was operated on two weeks ago. Well, that's great, and we'll have to put you in touch with my physical medicine doctor now, or daughter now. <laughs> Absolutely. But it, but it is, as these things come around, um, and particularly with somebody in the business that you are in now, 
of coaching people. It's fascinating to find somebody in your position who can say that it is anatomical, that there are certain things that we are physically more capable to do. And I guess it doesn't mean that people have to rush out and take some kind of serotonin booster. Um, but there is, uh, I mean, <laughs> will we ever get to the day, uh, Dr. Eddie Erlinson, when uh, performance uh, testing will be done on executives to see if you're taking too much B6? Well, it's interesting that you bring up, so the greatest enhancer of serotonin are practices of being a good observer, practices of awareness. So whether you go, you know, practice meditation or you actually every day set aside 20 minutes to listen to good music or whether you just walk mindfully and pay attention to your environment, you are giving your brain a serotonin boost. Wow. So now we know that this observer piece is actually has a neurochemistry and a neuroanatomy equivalent. So rather than taking uh, taking a pill, you probably are better off to enhance your own serotonin system by some type of daily, daily awareness practice, which is going to give you the skill of being an observer. And if you're doing that skill on a regular basis, when the, you know, when the proverbial uh, hits the fan, you will be much more aware and able to adjust. Well, I'm going to try that on the subway going home tonight. Good. Start breathing. You know, good diaphragmatic breathing has been known for years to be a serotonin serotonin enhancer. Well, it's interesting that uh, you're speaking of your daughter. My daughter is a ballet dancer uh, on the West Coast uh, in Los Angeles, and she has recently taken up yoga um, as a cross training, but also for exactly that same reason. And it's been remarkable to see her personal transformation by doing those kinds of exercises. Right. Well, executive yoga is a great thing to, to practice. <laughs> well, it's, it's been, um, I, w- I want to be aware of your time. Uh, this has led us into new and different directions, and I hope that um, you and I will have a chance to continue this discussion um, as uh, your coaching business and your input and research, you and well, I, I hope so too, and I'm quite sure we we will. And I, uh, I just you know want to applaud what you are doing to bring a variety of, of information to to people is very useful. I think what we now know at going through these tough times is that there's even less separation between our life and our work. And we, I think, now value our the key key values of our life even more. And we know that you can't have one without the other. And uh, I think you have found, always found the way to have discussions that show the value of, you know, how you live and how you lead are one and the same physiology. Well put. Till next time. Eddie okay. Thank you very much.